Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we're reading A Modern Knight Errant, The Tale of a Rescue by James Donald. This story was first published in The People's Friend in February 1910, and will be narrated for us by friend fiction editor Lucy. Over to Lucy. With a yawn... Ralph Denton closed the volume he had been reading and thrust it into his pocket. Pity the days of romance are past, he muttered, half regretfully, as he lighted a cigarette and stretched himself full length on the green sward. Must have been rather exciting living in the good old days. Life has become altogether too prosaic. No wicked villains to frustrate. No distressed damsels to succour. No... By George, what's that? A toy balloon, half deflated, was bumping across the grass towards him. Attached to it by means of a short string was a folded sheet of paper. Prompted by curiosity, Ralph Denton stretched out his hand and grasped the balloon as it passed. Some infant prodigy attempting to emulate the feats of Wilbur Wright, he muttered as he glanced at the frail device. Not very successfully either, I fear. Doesn't look as though it would affect any great revolution in the art of aviation. Half mechanically, he unwound the twine and unrolled the paper. Inside was another sheet, apparently a letter, in feminine handwriting. It is to be hoped the bad little boy hasn't been using his mother's correspondence for his experiments. Might lead to awkward complications if he scatters letters about in this promiscuous fashion. Still mechanically, Ralph Denton ran his eye over the written sheet. As he proceeded, an expression of deep interest appeared on his face. And when he finished, he sprang to his feet and tossed his cigarette away. By Jove! This beats everything! And I thought the days of romance were ended. Why, I appear to have been dropped into the very middle of them. Wonder what on earth I should do. Picking up the letter, which in his excitement he had let slip to the ground, he once more perused it carefully. It was undated, sure indication of the sex of the writer, and ran as follows. Should this letter fall into the hands of anyone willing to assist a poor girl in dire distress, I pray he will do so. Three days ago I was brought to this house. Where situated, alas, I know not. By my guardian under false pretenses. And I am to be kept a close prisoner until I consent to marry a man whom I hate. The address, the very place, I do not know. I was conveyed hither at dead of night in a closed carriage. All I can say is that it is a mansion with a large garden surrounded by high walls and apparently with no other dwelling near. From the window of my prison, which is on the top story, I have a view of the bleak hillside, which I have endeavoured to sketch in the faint hope that it may serve as a guide to anyone who may take the trouble to seek me. I am entrusting this message to a balloon which I have providentially discovered in the forlorn hope that this wind may carry it to someone able and willing to assist me. I pray that it may. I can write no more at present. Ralph Denton read this extraordinary epistle several times before he fully comprehended its import. At first he was inclined to regard it as a hoax a feeble attempt on the part of a would-be humorist to play an ill-timed practical joke. But the more he considered the matter, the more convinced he became that there was more in it than a jest. What should he do? Probably, 
The best plan would be to hand the letter over to the police and allow them to deal with it as they thought best. But he hesitated. The whole affair was too bizarre and improbable to impress the official mind. In all likelihood, he would only be laughed at for his pains. Besides, he had just been longing for an adventure, and here was the beginning of one wafted to his very feet. Why should he not follow the matter up himself, and if necessary, rescue the unfortunate girl by his own unaided efforts? Drawing the handkerchief from his pocket, he held it up to the breeze. The wind was blowing due west, and he recollected that it had been coming from the same direction for several days. In the west, therefore, he must search for the prison of the unknown. And it was unlikely that the frail balloon could have travelled very far from its starting point. Setting out at a brisk pace across the moor, he commenced the search. He had not far to seek. He had not proceeded more than a mile when he observed a large house answering the description in the letter. And as there was no other dwelling within sight, there seemed no doubt he had arrived at the right place. To make sure, he drew the note from his pocket and studied the sketch at the foot. It was roughly done, but apparently it had been drawn by no mean artist. With little difficulty, he was able to locate the scene depicted. It portrayed the landscape as viewed looking northwards. He once more returned his attention to the house. Two attic windows faced in that direction. One of these, obviously, was the window of the room in which the prisoner was confined. So far, Ralph Denton felt he had just reason to congratulate himself on the success that had attended his adoption of the role of amateur detective. But a more difficult problem remained. He had located the prison. How was he going to rescue the prisoner? To approach the house and boldly demand her release would, he knew, be worse than useless. His demand would be met with a contemptuous refusal. Worse, it would put the inmates on guard and probably nullify any further attempt that might be made. Nope, he must devise some other plan. Seating himself on the turf, he closely surveyed the house. A humming sound above his head attracted his attention. Looking up, he observed a wire stretching from a pole by the roadside to another in the garden and from thence to the top of the house. Evidently, the mansion was in telephonic communication with the outside world. He gazed at the wire for several minutes. Suddenly, his brow cleared and a look of determination overspread his face. I have it, he exclaimed excitedly. If anything goes wrong, it may land me in a deuce of a mess, but the game's worth it, and I'll chance it. Springing to his feet, he returned at a brisk pace to the village at which he was residing, and took the first train to the neighbouring market town. There he made several curious purchases. First, at an old clothes shop, he procured a set of working clothes and a cap with an official band to match. Next, he visited an ironmongery establishment and invested in a length of stout rope. A serviceable pair of pliers completed his purchases and with these, well satisfied with the result of his day's work, he returned to his digs. Early next morning, before daylight had broken, Ralph Denton stood outside the wall of the mansion. Pausing at the foot of the telephone pole, he glanced cautiously around. No one was in sight. Clambering agilely up the pole, he produced the pliers and deftly severed the wire. Three or four hours later, a man dressed in a suit of working clothes entered the avenue and approached the back door of the house. An old man appeared in response to his knock and gazed at him suspiciously. What do you want? he demanded in a surly tone. I've come to repair the telephone, returned the visitor glibly. It is out of order. Never heard anything about it. That's strange. I was told there was a breakdown and I was instructed to come out and repair it. Well, I suppose it is all right. Come in and have a look at it. 
Never did believe much in these new-fangled things myself. What possessed the master to put it in is more than I know. With beating heart, Ralph Denton, for it was he, followed the old man into the house and was ushered into the room where the instrument was. After a show of testing it, he turned to his conductor, who was standing by. Instrument is all right. The fault must be in the wire. I suppose I can get on the roof? With much muttered grumbling, the old fellow led the way upstairs. There's a trap door to the roof, he said, when they reached the top landing. You'll find a stepladder in that closet. Come down and shut the trap when you're done. I'm going to finish my breakfast. Mounting the ladder, Denton pushed open the trap and a minute later stood on the slates. Wearily scrambling over the steep roof, he made his way to the window of the attic. As he approached it, the sash was thrown open and a girl gazed pensively out. Observing him, she started back with a little cry of alarm. Quick as lightning, Denton drew the toy balloon from his pocket and held it towards her. Evidently she understood, for her expression changed to one of expectancy. Raising a finger to her lips, she pointed swiftly towards the interior of the room as an indication that she was not alone. What's the matter? demanded a querulous voice. What are you making that noise for? Oh, it's nothing, Marjorie. I hurt my finger raising the sash, that is all. For a moment, Denton was nonplussed, but he quickly recovered his self-possession. Hastily producing a pencil, he scribbled a note on the back of the letter. Moving noiselessly towards the window, he passed it into the girl's outstretched hand. After a furtive glance behind, she read it carefully. When she had done so, she looked towards Denton, nodded affirmatively and again raised her finger to her lips. She then drew in her head and closed the window with a bang. Ralph Denton's next move was somewhat peculiar. Divesting himself of his coat, he produced a coil of rope which was tightly wound around his body. One end he deftly secured to a chimney. The remainder he coiled and placed at the extreme edge of the gutter. Taking a reel of black thread from his pocket, he fastened it to the loose end of the rope. Then, having assured himself by a hasty glance over the edge that there was no one below, he dropped the reel to the ground, the thread paying out as it fell. This done, he crawled back to the hatchway by which he had gained access to the roof, just as the old man, suspicious of his long absence, was coming up to look for him. Sorry, I have been unable to locate the trouble, he explained. Your wires are all right. The fault must be on the line outside. However, you can rest assured. We will lose no time in having it put right. It was nearing midnight when Ralph Denton once more approached the mysterious house. His preparations of the morning gave a good hint to his intentions. The thread, black and almost invisible, was scarcely likely to be observed. By pulling it, he would bring down the rope, which, to a man young and effective as he was, would give easy access to the roof. And by the same means, the girl could effect a descent and thus escape from the house of bondage. He had selected a spot near the gate as the best place to clamber over the garden wall. And he was in the act of doing so when a faint purring sound reached his ears. Looking round, he observed the lights of a rapidly approaching motor car. Crouching in the shadow of the wall, he waited for the car to pass. As it came near, it slackened speed and drew up with a jerk at the gate, within a few yards of where he lay. Peering cautiously from his place of concealment, Ralph Denton could see that the car contained two occupants. One, a man of middle age, sat inside. The other, apparently considerably younger than his companion, was acting as chauffeur and occupied the driver's seat. As the car came to a standstill, both men dismounted. No use bringing the car inside, Farquhar, remarked the elder of the men. Everything should be in readiness, and we ought to start again in five minutes. As you please, returned the other. 
only I fail to see why you should be in such a deuce of a hurry. We've come a good bit. Seems to me it would be only hospitable to offer a fellow some supper, or at least a drink, before rushing off again. Hang it, man. Haven't I already told you there is need to hurry? How? I don't know, but the fact that Stella is here has got wind. In some mysterious way, she appears to have established communication outside, and I have told you how old Peter discovered the very ingenious plan by which admittance was gained to the house and the preparations made for a return visit, doubtless for this very night. Of course, if this young whippersnapper were to come along, we could easily deal with him and give him a very warm reception. But he may bring police assistance, which would complicate matters very considerably. So, the best plan is to get the girl away before anything happens. Oh, it's a beastly bore, but no doubt you are right. I hope there won't be any row. Do you think Stella will be inclined to come without a fuss? His companion smiled grimly. I fancy she will. Marjorie is taking the precaution of mixing a sleeping powder with her coffee this evening so I do not imagine she will be at all likely to offer any active resistance. But we are wasting time. Let us get in. Pushing open the gate, the two men walked up the avenue, leaving the car by the roadside. Emerging from his hiding place, Ralph Denton watched them as they disappeared into the house. What should he do? Apparently his scheme of rescue had miscarried. His preparations had been discovered and... As a result, the girl was to be removed to a new prison house. Should he attempt to rescue her? By force? Had there been but one man, he would not have hesitated, but against two, reinforced by assistance they would receive from the inmates of the house, what chance had he? While he yet debated the question, the two men reappeared, supporting the inanimate form of the girl. Crouching behind the car, Denton saw them place her inside. When they had done so, the elder man turned again towards the gate. Get ready to start, Farker, he said. Old Marjorie has packed a bag with Stella's things. I'll go back and fetch it. I'll be with you in a minute. With a surge of joy in his breast, Denton listened to the retreating footsteps. It was the opportunity he had longed for. He had now but one man to deal with. Stealthily creeping round the car, he waited until Farker, all unconscious of his proximity, placed his foot on the step. Then with a bound he sprang upon him, seized him by the collar and flung him violently into the ditch. Next instant he sprang into the vacant seat. Bending down he hastily pulled the lever. The car bounded forward grazing in its passage the leg of his adversary as, swearing horribly, he emerged from the ditch. And as he glanced over his shoulder, the last thing Denton saw was the figure of the elderly man, a Gladstone bag in his hand, dancing in impotent rage in the middle of the roadway and shaking his disengaged fist at the disappearing car. Ralph Denton smiles mysteriously when he hears anyone bewail the passing of the days of romance. And his wife is ever ready to acknowledge that even in the present prosaic days, there is occasionally need of a modern knight errant. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, we're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. My name is Karen and I'm from East Grinstead. The best thing about being a member of the Odd Fellows is that there's always someone to talk to if you need help and advice, whether it be a member of your local branch or whether it be the Care and Welfare Helpline or the Citizens Advice Price Helpline. You never feel on your own. Hi, I'm Diana from South London. The best part about being an Art Fellows mem- member is I feel like I have an extended family to talk to and see them almost daily on Zoom. My name is Colin from Blackpool, and the best thing about being a member uh, of the Art Fellows 
is that I get to meet uh, a, a broader range of people outside my normal social circle. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, the Oddfellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was A Modern Knight Errant, The Tale of a Rescue by James Donald, which was first published in The People's Friend in February 1910. That was narrated for us by Lucy, um, our fiction editor, who is unable to join us for this episode. So instead, I'm joined by features editor Alex. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ian. And fiction team's Abby. Hello, Abby. Hello. And Barry from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, Barry. Hello. So, A Modern Knight Errant. The thing that most struck me about this story when I uh, was reading it was I genuinely had no idea where it was going. And I don't think um, to not to pour scorn on our entire endeavour here, but I don't think that happens very often when you're reading stories that come from the Friend Archives. I think most of the time you've got at least a fair idea where it's going to go. I guess technically this does sort of go there with the last couple of lines, um, but we'll get to that. But certainly as I was going through it, I was left wondering, I I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what he's going to discover. Um, I don't know how they're going to get out of this, which I would say was a pleasant surprise. I would agree. I think I right from the beginning, first couple of pages even in, I had no idea whether we were going for a comedy ending or a very serious ending i didn't quite expect a sort of human trafficking (laughs) (laughs) ending but i really wasn't and i I really enjoyed it for that reason to be honest because i was like i really don't know what's going to happen this is really quite unusual for the stories that we've read and that i think for that reason one of the many reasons that i really enjoyed this one yeah this one was quite exciting abby wouldn't you say yeah it was definitely i definitely agree that it was unpredictable i felt like i was along for the ride which is quite fun so and does the friend uh, kind of have a, a a history of these sorts of adventure stories, Barry? Do you know? Have you encountered when you've been going through the archives stories of this kind of daring do? The only one that occurs is one we've covered previously, and that was to do with um, a train going through part of America, uh, the western part of America, which was on fire, mm-hmm. which was quite exciting. Uh, the girl train driver. That's it. Yeah, I mean, literally, it was right in front of me, wasn't it? The girl train driver. Um, yeah, no, you, you don't get this sort of stuff. I don't think this is more of a this is more of a boy's own story, really, isn't it? In some respects, it's not. It's not what you might expect to find in the friend, which is which is good in a way. I mean, it's interesting. It, had, you know, it is a. It was something you could just kind of switch off and kind of like like Abby said, go along for the ride. Absolutely. Was a bit confused by the comments that the letter Ties of the Balloon was undated, which was a sure indication of the sex of the writer. I really wanted that to come up. <laughs> I was really confused by that. I can't imagine. I'm clearly, I'm clearly very naive, but I, I couldn't imagine that at any point there would be any sort of gender disparity between dating correspondence. Abby, when you're writing people letters, do you put the date in them? I don't tend to write people letters. <laughs> so I think we've debunked this theory that um, women don't date the things that they write. Yeah, all I could get from it was that uh, women wouldn't think to date it, so he had no idea when it was. It's kind of like, oh, typical. <laughs> kind of That kind of comment, which I thought was maybe unnecessary it wasn't necessary the poor woman didn't know where she was never mind what day it was so you know it's not really on her but this uh, casual sexism um just just to let you know you know it wasn't isolated uh i did actually have a quick look around um and because we are doing a sort of a, a romance valentine's theme i went to valentine's day 1910 just to see what uh the agony uncle the oracle was advising people on that day, as you can imagine, it'd be full of, full of sage, and lovely advice. 
but the very first one at the top. Rab, it is only her manner. Take no notice of it. Women are not so strong as men, so they put on an appearance of strength just to look cool. <laughs> so there we are. <laughs> I mean, that really sums yeah. it up. <laughs> That's just as caustic as I expected from the Oracle, to be honest. I mean, I thought it was quite interesting. Though. We didn't really see where it was going, but when you look back over it, the writer does kind of foreshadow a lot of what's to come. I mean, you've got this idea of old versus new. This is a this is somebody who's living in the past a little bit, but wants something modern, you know, something to happen in modern times. Uh, so the writer is at pains to sort of crowbar any mention of modernity just to juxtapose his sort of more romantic, old-fashioned notions. So right at the very start, you get this bizarre line of dialogue where he's speaking to himself, really, about some infant prodigy attempting to emulate the feats of Wilbur Wright. And, okay, we get it, mate. Okay, <laughs> calm down. It's just a balloon. Yeah, you know. It doesn't look as though it would affect any great revolution in the art of aviation. Okay, point made. But then you get them doing this half-mechanically thing, because we're going to emphasise the modernity, uh, as he unwound the twine. And you look further forward, and of course, modernity and twine both going to play their part later on. So I think maybe, maybe it's on us. Maybe we just didn't spot that. I did wonder about the mechanically thing. Um, it's repeated, isn't it? Yeah, he's, he half-mechanically unwinds the twine, and then later on it says, still mechanically, Ralph Denton ran his eye over the written sheet. So he hadn't, uh, he wasn't using his organic eyes, he was using the mechanical ones. <laughs> I did think, as you were saying, a bit, you said sort of boy's own kind of story, Barry, and I was getting a very hardy boy's kind of vibe from it when he goes away to... He's, he's fixed upon his plan to rescue the, the girl when he's found the house. And it takes you on this little journey as he goes to this shop and buys a weird assortment of stuff and you don't know quite what it's for. It was um, either that or the A-Team, you know, where the A-Team used to get trapped somewhere that suddenly had all the materials they needed to build a, a ridiculous device to get them out of the problem. Well, funnily you should say that, but uh, as is my want, uh, I did have a, a little look around the British newspaper archive. And I put in the term Knight Errant, and lo and behold, the same year, 1910, one of our papers carried a small article um, about the Boy Scouts, who they decided were more like modern Knight right. Errants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this idea, you know, this always be prepared and do a good turn, this, he's like, yeah, a bit of a Boy Scout is Ralph Denton. Apparently so. There should have been some chat about how many badges he had. His <laughs> shinning up pole badge, yeah. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of Hey Dougie recently. There's, there's Some of those badges get handed out for nothing. <laughs> I was a bit... Um, I was upset towards the end that he didn't... Get, well, obviously the outcome changed my mind, but to a point I was quite upset that he didn't reinstate their telephone connection, that he did just leave them. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time we got to the end, I thought, oh, that's fair enough. They're obviously not very nice people. But... Um, he obviously did just cut their line and then make out that, you know, obviously made out that he was the, the guy to come and fix it and then just um, wandered off and didn't bother ringing that in to uh, BT. They, they were human traffickers, Alex. They were. Well, <laughs> at this point, I didn't realise if this was all just going to be a, a lovely, entertaining game at the end and something massive misunderstanding that everybody would guffaw jollily together. That's not a word, jollily. Mm. It's very hard to say as well. That's, yeah, at that point I thought, oh dear, that's a bit, you know, it's a bit antisocial. Not bit nice like. and not very smart. If you're <laughs> going to kidnap someone, don't have a phone in the house. I mean, they think about it. Or leave balloons lying around. But I mean, you know, the phone first and foremost. They're not the smartest. <laughs> Especially at a time when it's it's definitely made clear that this is out of the ordinary. Um, because... He, he doesn't talk about there being a telephone line. He talks yeah. about them being in telephonic communication. <laughs> um, so it's obviously not, a, and I mean, this was 1910, so I'm guessing that not a lot of people were in telephonic communication with the outside world. Well, you'd be surprised. Again, uh, Evening Telegraph coming up trumps. Um, so I went, I, I decided just to get an idea of What's, what was out there in terms of uh, telephonic communication. And there was a lovely advert for phosphorine, 
the greatest of all tonics in the remedy of kings, which I will not dispute. And um, basically, this is one of these mad tonics, one of these quack cures that were allowed before we had uh, legislation to prevent it. And uh, they have advertising this, a picture of a telephone mechanic. And this is a couple of guys up a ladder. It looks so precarious. And the number of lines behind them would suggest that it was quite a busy, busy time for them. And the, the blurb that goes with this is brilliant. The dangers of modern industry compel large numbers of men to, to win a livelihood under which serious risks of bodily accidents that only the hardest <laughs> and most robust nervous system survives. <laughs> so you can tell <laughs> they need their phosphorine to go up this ladder. But it looks like, um, yeah, it looks like telephones were quite far rolled out at this point. Widespread enough that people would would understand what was going on. Well, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't. I mean, if it was that obscure, I guess yeah. you wouldn't use it in an advert. I never realised that phosphorine was what I've been missing, but I'll have to go and. Look no, it up. it's for the it's, it's the it's for the remedy of kings, Ian. Come oh, on. oh, sorry, my apologies. <laughs> and it <that> gives you, <laughs> and it's supplied by royal command, and it's quite an impressive list of people who. Have this. Sounds like something that would make you glow if you drank it and your children would have three eyes. Yeah, it really does. I just like to reinforce my nervous system. It, it seems that this podcast has become quite a good advert for our newspapers rather than for our magazine because um, they seem to have quite a lot of interesting stuff. It's interesting because you wonder whether the writers read some of these newspapers and then decided to, you know, maybe yeah. these words were kind of in the zeitgeist and they, the story came together because they were thinking about all these things. And yeah, so it's interesting that way to see kind of what was going on at the time and mm -hmm. how they might have been inspired. For it to have been so close to those examples that Barry was speaking about. It's mm -hmm. still something that wouldn't completely be impossible to happen today, I think. They're obviously... I was going to say the telephone line gets cut and he makes this mysterious visit. So I was in this really early days before the trope of like action movies. And we, we thought that they might be, you know, bad guys would be warned by the telephone line being cut and all this kind of stuff. But clearly they are and they act quickly when it, when this comes and, and, and he turns up and they get suspicious. I don't know. It's quite, I think it's, it's still exciting to read now because it's not completely it's not dated too badly, I don't think. Mm. Apart from, I'm always slightly obsessed with the, some of the language, though. I think there's quite an interesting difference between the way that he speaks to himself and then when he's pretending to be uh, a working man, suddenly he slips into a, a sort of turn of phrase that we might recognize as kind of modern speech as opposed to the slightly more floral, older stuff uh, when he's just speaking to himself and it's all quite kind of just too many words <laughs> and then the guy who's uh the, the kind of guy who's in charge of this this safe house where the lady is trapped upstairs and the woman that is the the captor um, of the lady speak in a in a in a language that i maybe in those days would have would have been considered quite rough mm. and ready and to the point and and as as ralph takes on when he goes to the door and he pretends to be the sort of telephone repair guy um and then when again when he's these guys come to pick the women up they're obviously i don't know if they're it's deliberate signposting that they're a class above or something but they have the slightly unnecessary extra words in their sentences more floral speech um not quite as bad as ralph does at the beginning but kind of more like that um and i thought if that's some signaling that the authors unconsciously do or consciously do when they're talking about the difference between working people and Ralph is presumably a man of some reasonable leisure, given that he's hanging around in the garden with a cigarette, wishing that he could um, shimmy up a tower and save a damson in distress. A damson? A damson. <laughs> a damsel. He's very Bertie Wister, isn't he? I got that impression, actually. That was the, the kind of idle interest he takes in this. Idle <laughs> Where he's like... Um, by, by Jove, I'm going to go on this adventure. Mm. By Jove, this beats everything. I also enjoyed how he briefly thought about contacting the police, but then thought, nah, I'll just handle it myself. That was brilliantly done, though. That was the best justification. I've got, I've got time for an adventure. <laughs> they'll, they'll never believe me. I might as well yeah. do it myself. I thought, yeah, fair enough. You've justified yeah. this. 
<laughs> there was a lovely detail near the beginning, and I, it's one of these things that I, I guess I may have just passed by normally. But there was a bit where uh, he's getting excited, and he has jumped. He's jumped up and said, "By Jove, this beats everything!" And he's deciding what to do. And that which after that it says he picks up the letter, which in his excitement he had let slip to the ground, and I remember that. That stuck with me because I thought, I wonder if they're setting this up. Is he going to be some clumsy clod? Is, he, is there going to be slapstick <laughs> later on? So when he got to the roof part, I was like, oh, <laughs> this is going to end badly. And I thought, when I came back to reread, I thought, I wonder if this is the the writer just trying to build a bit of tension, just, just to sort of catch us out and make us wonder how this is going to end. Yeah, is he going to come legs through the ceiling? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's what I was expecting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. There is that... That's that adds to the unpredictability of it because, I mean, I thinking back, I kind of didn't really have much faith in this character for some reason, um, and maybe it is because of these little things that were dropped or hinted at, and the fact that he is just kind of sitting around, not doing anything, and he's got all this time, and you think, has this guy really got the the ability to pull this off? But clearly, he did. So. It was with a bit of luck, though, wasn't it? I mean, he was lucky; he was in the right place at the right time, or he, he yeah. would have been rumbled, mm-hmm. which kind of adds to the charm. I yeah. think. When I was reading it, I did that. Um, as I said at the start, kind of, I wasn't sure where it was going to go. So, the first little while where he finds the note, I automatically was thinking because he'd uh, had that whole weird rumination about how it'll be a child who's distributing his mother's letters on these balloons <laughs> i thought that it was going to wind up being a child and he was going to like break into this house and it'll have been a child who was kind of mucking about uh, and he was going to look like a fool and then he goes to the house and there's the sort of slightly dismissive butler and he gets up onto the roof and everything and i was thinking oh it's going to be something else he's going to burst in on it'll be like a guy or it'll be a scientific experiment or something like that that they're conducting <laughs> uh, and then the woman's there and she opens the window and there's the whole conversation and I thought ah oh, well actually maybe that she is trying to escape something but I didn't ever think that it was going to be what it turned out to be that that she was actually being held captive I I then am automatically kind of having read a lot of stories that are in the friend from around about this period I was thinking it was going to be someone who had had an argument with her guardian and was sent to a room and was kind of mucking about, uh, throwing balloons out the window, and he was going to come <laughs> bursting in, and it would be a whole jolly misunderstanding like Alex was talking about. Well, we knew it wasn't going to be a child, Ian, because as it was undated, <laughs> that was a sure indication of the sex well, that- of the writer. <laughs> I think we can all agree on Sorry, this they point. had obviously signposted it. To me, that that was not going to. But I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about Ralph being catfished. <laughs> oh, that's a whole new perspective. <laughs> um, did anyone? I mean, I just wondered when the book that he's put down. I guess it must have been something that's put this idea of these romantic quests in his head. And I kind of thought, I wonder if it's Le Morte d'Arthur or the Vulcate Cycle, one of these, something to do with the, the the Knights of the Round Table. Does anyone know whether this has any? any relation at all to any of the the adventures i mean there must have been damsels in high castles i guess at some point mm, yeah not specifically oh, no, i don't know mm. yeah it sounds likely but no, if i thought i could get away with quickly googling it right now i would but um i think that would suddenly that would be very <laughs> obvious we'd have to have a voiceover turn up on the podcast to see after many hours of research <laughs> the panel return <laughs> It'd be a quest in itself. But as you say, that kind of medieval idea of damsels in high castles is definitely a, came up in those legends quite a lot. So we'd probably be in the public consciousness, obviously, yeah. when um, they're reading this. I would have liked more, um, I don't know if it's just a modern sensibility, but I felt like we were left very suddenly at the end with him just driving away and I needed more... <laughs> I wanted to know what, 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 who, who, what happened? Who, why were they holding her? Was it an organized gang? Was it? Mm-hmm. There's just even just a couple more paragraphs, just kind of some summing up what had gone on and why it had gone on. Would have been lovely rather than just leaping into the into the wife. I just, I just wanted more from it, but I don't know if that's kind of a modern sensibility. But I really just felt like I could have done with a 
for an explanation for this emotional roller coaster. Yeah, I definitely felt the same. <laughs> I don't think they had space. They had to get the violin player column in, and then there was a another <laughs> another fantastic advert for yeah, more vitalizing things. Uh, and this I belted actually. This one it's for some sort of battery which makes you strong somehow. Oh, hold on, you've got to be giving us more detail about that. <laughs> oh yeah, so I mean, right, <laughs> which I think is just brilliant placement. So this is for the Ajax dry cell battery. And there's a picture of a, a very ripped, very mm. toned gentleman with his, his top off. He says, I'm strong once more. I was once weak, thin, <laughs> emaciated, puny and colorless. Would you ever believe that I am the same man who came into your office three months ago? Look at me. See how well my muscles are developed. I have strength, vitality, energy, vim and vigor. And that Ajax dry cell battery is a wonder. I have no idea where you put this battery and I don't want to dwell, but it seems to work. He's looking pretty good. It's almost like a superhero story. It is. It's like some kind of strange superhero, like sci-fi element that you consume and then you suddenly become Superman. Wild man or Banana Ralph man. Denton becomes. When Ralph Denton eats a battery, he becomes Batman. Yeah. Banana man. Um, there's another podcast in here about people's friend adverts. Absolutely. There definitely is. It's the placement that always puzzles me. I mean, I can only imagine it must have been deliberate. They must have, they must have paired some of this stuff, surely. I know that in the, in the magazine these days, we tend to try and avoid that kind of thing where the likes of features and fiction about vaguely similar sounding things, we try to avoid having mm. them at the same time and uh, one after the other. And it's the same mm. with some of the adverts. We try not to, for reasons of not wanting to confuse the, the readers too much, or accidentally associate ourselves with things like the Ajax battery. <laughs> but it gives you vim and vigor. You know? If Ralph had vim and vigor, he could have just burst in there, grabbed her. I mean, <laughs> right, he's, he's technically guilty of kidnap at the end and car theft and assault. But other than that... Heroes are never really guilty of anything. It all gets forgiven in the end. Oh, that's true. Yeah, there's a very clear hero-villain divide, <laughs> usually. <laughs> I want to know what he wrote on the bit of paper. What did he write on the bit of paper that he... That he gave back to her. Yeah, he scribbled a note on the back of the letter. Mm. And she done, she nodded. So judging by his earlier speech, it must have taken him about 10 minutes. <laughs> Are you perchance in the unfortunate circumstance <laughs> of being <laughs> withheld against your most womanly will. Ralph dashed out a quick 400 words. <laughs> Alex, keep going, I'm invested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just channeling my inner aristocrat. This is, like the, this is like the director's cut. I'm loving it. Alex is having flashbacks <laughs> from when he narrated a couple of stories at the start of season one of the podcast, and they were labyrinthine in language. <laughs> they were quite tricky to negotiate, yeah. <laughs> I think that was quite a... There was one that was quite a adventurous one like this as well i think wasn't it was it the bank yeah it was it was called an american adventure that's right yes and he was some people discovered that he had some money and he was held captive against his will and then there was a quite improbable means by which his friend found where yeah. he was being held but i in this one i believed his reasoning how he found how he found her he followed the wind i thought that was quite cool really I thought that was quite cleverly done. I will go back to something Ian said earlier, or asked earlier, about the, the nature of stories in Friend. At this time, no, I don't think there were quite as many of the, the kind of action story or action-filled story, but this is really tame compared to some of the, the police and the detective fiction that they used to publish. Some of that was downright gory. In the Friend? And horrible. Oh, yeah, I mean... William C. Honeyman, when he, he was writing his McGovern series, um, there was all sorts of nasty things happening. Aww. So this is, I would say, this is quite light-hearted and tame. I mean, infanticide and kidnap and maltreatment. Yikes. Yeah, it was all in there. Goodness me. So this is, yeah, yeah. So thank you very much. But so this is this is a nice light-hearted one. Going back to things that we thought might have happened, I did have a, a moment where I thought. 
she'd maybe sent out multiple balloons and <laughs> lots of men were going to arrive at the same time to save her. Like a queue of guys with ladders trying to get up the roof. Yeah. All in the, the B&Q buying pliers at the same time. It's Takeshi's castle, isn't it? They're doing a sort of obstacle course to get to their prize. And the shopkeeper's just baffled all these people buying all these strange yeah. items. He's, he's had a great day, the amount of stuff he's managed to sell. I didn't see, I didn't read where he got the black thread. I just assumed he nicked it. He had a, he got the, he bought the twine and he bought the pliers, but he had some black thread and I thought, hmm. I don't know. Every gentleman carries. He's, he's escalated. He's gone from shoplifting to kidnapping within the <laughs> space of 12 hours. Well, this story's suddenly taken a dark turn. Ralph's not to be trusted. Excellent. <laughs> um, so, Abby, if this story turned up on the fiction desk today, what do you think you would, um, what, do you, what would you do with it? Or is there advice that you would give the writer to make it um, slightly more accessible or palatable to a modern audience? Or... Do you think even that it's um, fine the way it is? I think it works for the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure it would work now just because some of it I found a little bit, bit unbelievable. <laughs> it's a little bit exaggerated. So I think we'd probably go for something a bit more grounded these days. But I do think it's a really good story like of its time. <laughs> It would make a great letter in between friends, wouldn't it? How I met my wife or something. It'd be brilliant in the back of the... That's assuming that he married her. I mean, it doesn't actually say explicitly who his wife is, just that they have this knowing... I mean, this poor woman could be in a basement or something. <laughs> to be fair, she never actually specified that she wanted a partner out of this. She just wanted to get out of the situation that she was in. Yeah, another thing I would say is to... Like the language, as Alex was saying earlier, is probably toned down the <laughs> the way that he speaks. Yeah, it is a bit florid. Yeah. Even the criminals, to be honest, they're quite um, quite eloquent, aren't they? Which is quite ironic, really, because there's a bit where they they go on for quite a while. And of course, there's this young whippersnapper who's come along. And there's a couple of sentences and, oh, will, will she come along without? And then they, they speak out reasonable length about it and then eventually one of them says come on we're wasting time let's get in <laughs> uh, but the story never actually says they're low life's peasants no it doesn't it, yeah, it says that she's being a... held by somebody i'm, I'm sure uh, i'm gonna have to quickly look this up to make sure i'm not lying but i'm sure she's being held there because uh, they're trying to make her marry somebody which would presumably be someone uh roughly of her social standing yeah as it, it could very well be she's being held by rich people with lovely teeth <laughs> i mean it could be that she rich guy has just set her eyes set his eyes on her and decided that she's gonna be his wife and it's called ralph <laughs> yeah <laughs> well yeah <laughs> i don't think that um yeah she doesn't really have much say but i really enjoyed the fact that she took it upon herself to get that balloon and yeah. I mean, she starts the story, so that's always a good thing. <laughs> We've previously talked about kind of the agency of female characters, and she very much finds herself yeah. in a very difficult situation and takes steps to get herself out of it. They're possibly a good match because of that. They're quite both quite resourceful. <laughs> the, uh, I found the line here um, that she's written in the note in the letter that Ralph finds, and it says, should this letter fall into the hands of anyone willing to assist a poor girl in dire distress, I pray he will do so. Three days ago I was brought to this house, where situated, alas, I know not, by my guardian under false pretenses, and I am to be kept a close prisoner until I consent to marry a man whom I hate. So her guardian, uh, presumably someone that she is uh, either related to or or knows at least, um, has been in on this kidnapping and has brought her to this place presumably to marry her off to somebody and she's trying to escape that which i think actually probably does make this in sensibility a little bit more modern than certainly some of the stories with similar bents to them about people having their arra- their marriages arranged and it's all hunky-dory uh, this is very much i i do not want to do this and i will get out of it no matter what you try I like that the baddies get um, old Marjorie to do all the dirty work as well. 
I mean, she's very hands-on. She's <laughs> she's in this deep, and she's she's going down with the rest of them. That's for sure. So. Uh, we have we have come, I believe, to the part of the podcast where we're going to give the story uh, a rating out of ten. Uh, this is the process for folks who have listened to the podcast fairly regularly. They will know that this season we're giving our stories ratings, and the story at the end of the season with the highest rating will be republished in the magazine. We've had some good scores so far this season. We've had some not so good scores. We've had one terrible score. So I I predict that this one will perform reasonably well, but I'm ready to be contradicted. So Alex, what do you think? The story, uh, a rating out of 10? I'm torn between a 7 and an 8, but I think I'll opt for a 7. It moved along really briskly. It was it was great fun. It was cut a bit short at the end, but like you said, I think the real treat was just not knowing which way it was going to go and enjoying that all along. Absolutely. Seven for me. Um, Abby, what do you think? I was also thinking a seven. <laughs> yeah, just for the same reasons. It's a really fun, action-filled story. You don't know where it's going. The characters are interesting. But the only downside I saw to it was the ending that, as Alex said, it was a bit abrupt. So, yeah, I would score it down for that. No worries. And Barry, what do you say? I will go for eight mm-hmm. because I quite liked the ending. I liked the fact that Ralph Denton smiles mysteriously because we still don't know who he married. So I will go for an eight. I really enjoyed this. It was good fun. Excellent. Uh, well, that's it for this episode. So it just remains for me to say thank you to Alex, Barry and Abby for joining me. And thank you to Lucy for narrating the story. And thank you for listening. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £6, and that special offer is available until May 31st, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend. <laughs>